Welcome everybody uh, to the ASIMS virtual public lecture and this is the second convict age explaining the return of mass imprisonment in Australia with the Honourable Dr Andrew Lee. My name is Adrian Barnett and I'm an Associate Investigator with the Australian Research Centre for Excellence in Mathematical and Statistical Frontiers, otherwise known as ASIMS, and I'm a professor in the School of Public Health and Social Work at Queensland University of Technology. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I live and work, the Turrbal and Yuggera, as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be online today. We are delighted to welcome the Honourable Dr Andrew Lee presenting today as part of the ASIMS virtual lecture series. Andrew Lee is the Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury and Charities and Federal Member for Fenner in the ACT. Prior to being elected in 2010, Andrew was a Professor of Economics at the Australian National University. He holds a PhD in Public Policy from Harvard, having graduated from the University of Sydney with first-class honours in Arts and Law. Andrew is a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Sciences and a past recipient of the Young Economist Award, a prize given every two years by the Economic Society of Australia to the best economist under 40. He's written many books, including Disconnected, Battlers and Billionaires, The Economics of Just About Everything, The Luck of Politics, Randomisters, How Radical Research Has Changed Our World. Uh, and I read that one and really enjoyed that one. I highly recommend that one. Uh, great introduction to randomized trials. And Innovation and Equality, How to Create a Future That is More Star Trek Than Terminator with Joshua Gans. And Andrew also hosts a really good podcast, again, highly recommend this, uh, called The Good Life. So, Dr. Lee, thanks for joining us today. Dara Nuna, Dara Nunawal. Yongu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan. Nanawal Wari, Dara Wari. Dindi, Nanmelirinjinjin. I want to thank the... Uh, none of all people, the elders on whose land I'm meeting today and acknowledge them in, in NAIDOC week, uh, an especially important time to acknowledge but also to celebrate Indigenous culture. We'll be talking today about incarceration, about the, one of the uh, real gaps that exists in Australia. Uh, but I do want to say at the outset what an extraordinary thing it is to share this land with a peoples whose continuing link goes back 60,000 years, uh, well in excess of the Greek, the Roman civilizations, and what an extraordinary privilege that is. Uh, Adrian, thank you very much for inviting me to speak today. Uh, I'll be speaking about uh, two pieces of research, one published in the Economic Record, the other one, the Australian Economic History Review, uh, just in the last couple of months. Uh, and they flow out of some work that I've been doing over the course of the last year, uh, looking at how Australia's incarceration rates have changed. Uh, I attended a school uh, called James Roos, uh, named after a former convict, and proof, if ever there was one, that early Australia took the notion that criminality wasn't hereditary uh, and that it was possible to rehabilitate people. Uh, we, at that stage, uh, had uh, one of the highest incarceration rates in the world, and the reason for my research is uh, noting that we seem to be entering what I've dubbed a second convict age. Uh, that after uh, a long period in which Australia had a very low incarceration rate, uh, we now have a much higher incarceration rate than we had in the past, uh, and also a higher incarceration rate than countries such as Canada and Britain. Uh, so what I'm going to do today is to show you uh, some of the research that I've done looking at very long-run incarceration rates, compare it with other countries, focus in particular on Indigenous incarceration, and then try and say a little bit uh, about what's driven the changes in incarceration. Uh, so let me now share with you uh, an, an initial picture here. Uh, you're now looking at uh, the incarceration rate of Australians uh, right, going back right to 1860. Uh, this was an especially fun series to put together uh, because we get back to the transportation era. Uh, as you know, transportation ended in 1868 uh, and before the end of transportation, Australia was incarcerating uh, about 650 uh, pe people per 100,000 adults. Uh, to put it in, into perspective, uh, that's about as high a rate of incarceration as was seen in South Africa at the height of the apartheid era. What's important about this series is that it uh, not only looks at incarceration as a share of the total population, but also as a share of the adult population. Uh, that's how the, the uh, in calculating as a share of the adult population is how the Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, does things these days. 
most statistical agencies do the same thing. Uh, it turns out to be surprisingly complicated to calculate that going back. Uh, and uh, what I've done for the other English-speaking countries uh, represents fresh series for all of them, uh, not just for Australia. Uh, and so you can see, first of all, just the massive drop that we had in incarceration rates uh, over the course of the late 19th century. Uh, incarceration over that period uh, falling from the order of 650 uh, prisoners per 100,000 adults, uh, or about 0.6% of the population, uh, down to less than 100 prisoners per 100,000 adults, uh, or about 0.1% of the population uh, in 1920. A uh, little rise in incarceration in the 20s, uh, but then when the Great Depression hit, the incarceration rate fell, uh, stayed low, and indeed went lower during World War II. Uh, we saw a, a modest rise in incarceration during the swinging 60s, uh, but then a fall again during the 1970s. And in that period, from 1973 through to 1990, uh, we had, as I'll show you in a moment, the lowest incarceration rate of the five English-speaking countries. Uh, but then from the mid-1980s onwards, uh, we've seen quite a sharp rise in the incarceration rate. Uh, an 130% increase in Australia's incarceration rate uh, since 1985. Australia now incarcerates 221 prisoners per 100,000 adults, uh, or 0.2% of the population. Uh, that's the highest incarceration rate we have had since 1899. Uh, so our incarceration rate uh, really is at a 120-year high. Uh, this series now compares Australia's incarceration rate uh, with four other uh, English-speaking countries, uh, Canada, England and Wales. Sorry to any Scots there, your old data just isn't quite as good. Uh, New Zealand and the United States. You can see that the United States has a late 20th century rise, which uh, is greater even than Australia's late 19th century fall. Uh, the United States increasing from uh, being a, a country that locked up about 0.2% of its population to going in 2007 to a country which was literally locking up more than 1% of adults. It's kind of amazing to think about uh, a country which is incarcerating more than one in 100 adults. But the other interesting thing about the United States is the fall. Uh, we've seen a, a significant fall in incarceration in the US uh, in the order, I think, of about 20%. Uh, and that has been uh, due to bipartisan reform. Uh, you've seen incarceration falling uh, in uh, Texas, uh, in Arkansas. Uh, you've seen the closing of prisons right across these states, uh, uh, led to a significant degree by Republican governors who decided that there was nothing essential to conservative principles uh, that said you should be raising taxes in order to build prisons. Uh, that prison reform movement indeed even stretched up to President Trump, uh, who at the end of last year uh, signed a federal prison reform act uh, which uh, reduced sentences for uh, a range of drug offences, uh, reversing some of the moves which had seen significantly tougher sentences imposed for trafficking crack cocaine than heroin. Uh, but there's been a, a range of, of reformers working in the US. Uh, the uh, Pew reformers have been particularly important there. Uh, in terms of other countries, uh, we've seen a modest rise in incarceration uh, since the mid-1980s in Britain, uh, quite a significant rise in New Zealand, and indeed New Zealand's incarceration rate now exceeds Australia's, uh, and no increase at all in Canada. Uh, Canada is really striking over the past generation uh, in being the English-speaking country uh, in, in this sample of five, uh, which simply haven't, hasn't seen a rise in incarceration. Uh, but curiously, uh, the crime rate trends are quite similar across all of these countries. Uh, so you see a whole lot of different patterns in terms of what's going on with the number of people in the lockup, but uh, very little in terms, very little difference uh, in terms of crime. Uh, crime increases uh, from the 1970s through to the late 1990s, uh, but then in all of these countries uh, falls. And I'll show you some specifics uh, around Australia's crime, crime rates uh, in a moment. Uh, Indigenous incarceration is, uh, is clearly a big priority for Australia and these figures show why. 
what I've done in constructing Indigenous incarceration rates uh, is to deal with a, a problem that arises uh, in calculating long-run Indigenous incarceration, which is that over time, Indigenous Australians have been more likely to identify in the census as Indigenous. Uh, so if you take the same person, uh, they were more likely to identify as Indigenous in the 2011 census than they were, say, in the 1991 census. Uh, changing the denominator obviously changes the rates. So if you don't account for this, it plays havoc in uh, calculating long-run Indigenous incarceration rates. Uh, once you adjust for it, uh, then you can see the sheer scale of the rise. Uh, let's look at the top line first. That's the, the raw incarceration rate. Uh, so at around the time the Indigenous Deaths in Custody Report, 1991, Australia is incarcerating uh, about 1% of Indigenous Australians. Uh, that is now uh, more than doubled. Uh, we've got up to 2.5% of Indigenous Australians are incarcerated. Uh, the lower line, the grey line, shows uh, what the Indigenous incarceration rate would be if the age structure of the Indigenous population was the same as the age structure of the non-Indigenous or of the entire Australian population uh, in the year 2001. Uh, that is a little lower uh, because Indigenous Australians tend to be younger uh, and imprisonment rates are higher among younger people, uh, but it is still many multiples of the non-Indigenous incarceration rate. Uh, as I recall it, Indigenous Australians are about 14 times more likely to be incarcerated uh, than non-Indigenous Australians. Uh, now, I should, uh, should just uh, say that this is uh, just a point in time. We're basically taking a photograph here of what Indigenous incarceration looks like, uh, but it's important to recognise that lives aren't lived in photos, they're lived in videos. So if you ask the question, what are the chances that an Indigenous man has spent time in jail, uh, they are considerably higher than the snapshot two and a half percent. For an Indigenous man of my generation, I'm born in the 1970s, uh, there's a 23 percent chance uh, that that, uh, that man has spent time in jail. Uh, if you broaden it even further and you ask what are the odds that an Indigenous man has been arrested, charged or summonsed, uh, in Western Australia, uh, work by Eliana Frante uh, has found that there is an 89% chance that an Indigenous man in Western Australia has been arrested, charged or summonsed uh, if he was born in the 1970s. Uh, that compares with only 23% of non-Indigenous people in that state. So it's, uh, it's a very rare Indigenous person, uh, Indigenous man in Western Australia, uh, who has not been arrested, charged or summonsed. Uh, making contact with the criminal justice system uh, a, a normal part of life in many of these communities. Uh, we've also got uh, higher differences in rates across the country. Uh, again, looking at Western Australia, the headline Indigenous incarceration rate is uh, 4%, uh, meaning that one in 25 Indigenous adults uh, in Western Australia are currently behind bars. Uh, the McGowan government's uh, made some movements recently around uh, removing fine default as a category for imprisonment, uh, but the incarceration rate in that state is still uh, terrifyingly high. So Indigenous incarceration is, is clearly one of the big factors that is, that is driving disparities. Uh, it does so, for example, through uh, uh, impacts on health. Uh, we know that uh, uh, people in jail are more likely to be assaulted. Uh, and more likely to, uh, to uh, experience mental ill health. Uh, we also know that that uh, has a significant impact in terms of employment. Uh, so it is much harder to get a job if you've got a criminal record uh, and uh, Indigenous uh, incarceration therefore drives gaps in employment. Uh, let me go back to presenting there. So that's the Indigenous incarceration rate. Uh, now we come to compare Australian Indigenous people with African Americans. Uh, if you go back to 2007, uh, there was a big difference between these two, these two levels. In 2007, uh, the African American incarceration rate was about 75% uh, higher than the Indigenous incarceration rate. 
But then, as I've mentioned, uh, the United States uh, prison reformers brought down incarceration rates uh, in the US uh, and that uh, naturally brought down, brought down African-American incarceration rates. Uh, at the same time, Australia's uh, incarceration rates continued to rise, including for Indigenous Australians. Indeed, the Indigenous incarceration rate has been rising faster than the, uh, the headline rate. Uh, and in 2017, uh, for the first time that I can measure, uh, Indigenous Australians became more likely to be incarcerated than African Americans. Indigenous leader Noel Pearson has referred to Indigenous Australians as the most incarcerated people on earth, and I know of no evidence to challenge that claim. Uh, so it is not only a, a scandal from, the Australia, from an Australian perspective, uh, but looking globally, uh, the level of indi Indigenous incarceration is just shocking. Uh, the uh, uh, government has been talking about including uh, imprisonment targets in the close the gap targets, uh, but as I understand it, uh, are now backing off it because of a concern that the gap is so large that it would take many decades to close. Uh, I'm not sure I regard this as a particularly good argument. Uh, if you think that the problem is significant, uh, you should target trying to, uh, to deal with it uh, rather than saying, look, this seems like a really tough problem. We'd better not, better not have a target. Uh, but uh, it's up to them to, uh, to, to, answer, to answer on that one. And I do hope that they, uh, they come around to the right view. Uh, so uh, just before I go on to the next slide, let me explain where we're going, going next. Um, so then there is an open question as to what has caused uh, the increase in incarceration. Uh, and one straightforward uh, argument might be, well, you've seen a, a rise in crime, you've got more people doing bad things, and therefore there's more people being locked up. Uh, this would be a, a view supported if you were to uh, uh, read stories in the press. Uh, we uh, very rarely see uh, stories about uh, crimes averted on the nightly news. Instead, you see stories about crimes committed. Uh, and particularly horrific crimes such as uh, home invasions uh, or very public, public attacks uh, uh, loom large in people's minds. Uh, so therefore it's important to go to the data uh, and to be able to uh, very clearly look at what has happened to crime rates over this long period. Uh, I'm indebted to, uh, to Queensland researchers who've uh, constructed a homicide series going right back into the middle of the 19th century uh, that then allows me to look at the relationship between homicide and imprisonment. Uh, a homicide can be thought of as uh, a long-run proxy for violent crime. Uh, it's not perfect. Uh, better emergency rooms mean that for a given level of violence, uh, a victim is less likely to die. Uh, more access to guns means that uh, for a given level of violence, victims are more likely to die. Uh, but over a, a long-run period, it's, it's the best we've got. And so I'm going to show you uh, the long-run series of, uh, of homicide uh, and plot that next to uh, uh, the long-run series we've got on imprisonment. So here are the two series. Uh, the homicide rate is the wiggly line. Uh, the incarceration rate is the more stable line. Uh, the number of people being killed jumps up and down more than the, uh, the number of people who are behind bars. And so you can see uh, two things out of this, uh, this trend. Uh, firstly, the homicide rate was extremely high uh, in the mid-1900s. Uh, mid uh, you, uh, uh, you had about a four and a hundred thousand chance of being victim of homicide uh, back in the, uh, in, in the mid-1800s. Uh, you've only got about a one in a hundred thousand chance of being a victim of a homicide today. Uh, so homicide, homicide rates are uh, uh, well down. Uh, the other thing to note about this is that uh, the homicide rate, uh, unlike the incarceration rate, uh, is almost the lowest that it's, uh, it's been in this entire series. Uh, there were moments in, uh, in World, War II, World War II when the, when the homicide rate was lower than it is today, uh, but we have a, a very low homicide rate. So you have for the first uh, three quarters of this series up until about 1970, uh, a very strong positive relationship between homicide and incarceration. If I stopped this series in 1970, you'd say, well, these two, these two go together. 
when murders are high, imprisonment is high. When murders are low, imprisonment is low. That's not just seen in the, in the broad trends. There's also the sort of uh, ebbs and flows that you see for the 1920s, 1940s, 1960s. But then if I, instead of giving you the series from 1860 to 1970, gave you the series from 1970 to 2020, you'd come to the opposite conclusion. Uh, at this stage, you'd say, well, these two things seem to go in the opposite direction. Uh, when the murder rate goes up, the imprisonment rate goes down. When the murder rate goes down, the imprisonment rate goes up. Uh, indeed, for those of you who think in terms of correlations, the correlation between homicide and incarceration up until 1970 is 0.9. The correlation between homicide and incarceration from 1970 onwards is minus 0.9. So anyone who thinks they've got a, uh, uh, a consistent relation, a consistent story between uh, homicide and incarceration, uh, please come and see me after class because, uh, frankly, I can't see any in these data. Uh, it's also worth noting the massive drop in the homicide rate uh, since I was a kid. Uh, when I was a kid in the uh, 1980s, uh, I didn't realise, but uh, we were going through uh, the, uh, the worst homicide epidemic that we'd had in the post-war era. Uh, your chances of being victim of murder, about two in 100,000. It's now halved. Uh, our chances of being a murder victim are half what they were in the 19, 1980s. Uh, so it's difficult for me then to make a conclusion that uh, the uh, driver of the main driver of incarceration is systematically crime, uh, or else to flip it around and say, well, what's really prevented crime uh, is incarceration, uh, because if uh, prevent, if incarceration prevented crime, we shouldn't have seen the correlation we saw early on. Uh, this is the, uh, the patterns of a declining crime rate are also seen in other crimes. Uh, here I've gone to crime victimisation surveys uh, carried out by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Uh, your chance of being a robbery victim, uh, about half what they were uh, in the 1980s. Your chance of being victim of an assault, down about a third. Uh, your chance of being a victim or a woman's chance of being a victim of a sexual assault, because that's how it was measured early on, uh, is unchanged. Though some people think that reporting rates may have increased, meaning that the true rate may well have fallen. Uh, motor vehicle theft down by two thirds, break-ins down by 40%, attempted break-ins down by a third. Uh, put those together, weighted for the prevalence, uh, and overall crime rates uh, down 38%. Uh, throughout uh, throughout this period, so it does seem, seem then uh, that uh, that the increase in uh, incarceration we've seen can't be simply a product of rising crime rates. Uh, looking right across a, a whole broad set of crime, uh, crimes, uh, we don't appear to have seen uh, an increase in incarceration rates, uh, an, incre an increase in crime over this period. Uh, as to whether the uh, there might have been a preventive effect. Uh, that seems uh, at odds with the uh, with the literature on the uh, crime preventing impact of incarceration. Uh, to the extent that this uh, literature points anywhere, uh, it seems to suggest to fairly small effects, uh, and also uh, to effects which diminish as the number of people in jail increases. Uh, these are uh, elasticities, so an increase in incarceration off a small base is a larger proportionate increase, uh, meaning that each additional prisoner now has about a quarter of the pr crime preventing effect uh, that he or she would have had in the 1980s. Uh, so we're definitely in the area of diminishing or potentially even negative marginal returns uh, in terms of the crime preventing impact of, uh, of additional incarceration. Uh, so what uh, what does uh, explain things? Well, first of all, we should uh, look across jurisdictions. Uh, this is uh, looking at uh, the incarceration rate per 100,000 adults in the mid-1980s uh, and looking at it uh, in 2018. Uh, we can either look at the absolute change, the percentage point change. Uh, we look at, look at proportional changes, the percentage change. Overall, as I mentioned to you before, uh, in the mid-1980s, uh, we were incarcerating 96 prisoners per 100,000 adults. 
2018, we're incarcerating 221 prisoners per 100,000 adults. Uh, that represents a 130% increase, more than a doubling of the incarceration rate. Uh, and what's striking is you basically see that right across the board. Uh, you see uh, an increase in incarceration uh, in the jurisdictions which had very high incarceration rates in the mid-1980s, uh, Western Australia and the Northern Territory, uh, but you also see it in the places that had very low incarceration rates in the mid-1980s, uh, the Australian Capital Territory uh, and Victoria. Interestingly, you might think that the Australian Capital Territories change happened because we got a prison, which we didn't have in the mid-1980s. Uh, but even before the Alexander McConaughey Centre was opened, uh, there was already an increase uh, in incarceration in the ACT. Uh, so having a prison wasn't the entire story. Uh, the the ab absolute changes uh, vary quite a bit because uh, of, the, of the base. So in the smallest absolute change, Tasmania increases by about 75 prisoners per 100,000 adults, the Northern Territory by 600 prisoners per 100,000 adults, uh, and in proportionate terms, the ACT is the biggest increase. I would just signal out from this uh, the Northern Territory, uh, which is now very close to the point of incarcerating 1% uh, of its population. Uh, so this is the Northern Territory now has an imprisonment rate uh, approximately where the United States was uh, at the peak of its prison boom uh, in, the, uh, in, in, in 2007. What do we know about people behind bars? Uh, there's a, a prison survey which is uh, conducted uh, on an annual basis and it's possible to compare uh, the characteristics of prisoners uh, in the mid-1980s with the characteristics of prisoners today. Uh, we had about 11,000 prisoners in the mid-1980s, about 43,000 now. Uh, and uh, the, since then, we've seen a significant rise in the share of prisoners uh, who are female and Indigenous. Uh, you're about, there's about twice the share of, of uh, female prisoners now, uh, up from 5 to 8%. Uh, and the, the, the share of Indigenous prisoners has gone from 11 to 28% although part of that will be the increased prevalence of Indigenous people to identify as such. Uh, we've seen a significant increase in the age of prisoners. Uh, there's a, a whole lot more grey-haired prisoners now than they were uh, in the, uh, the mid-1980s, uh, with the average age in prison going up seven years from 29 to 36. Prisoners are also less likely to have uh, served time behind, bar behind bars. Uh, so if you think about those in kind of broad risk terms, uh, the, uh, the young white, young white men uh, who were uh, character, characteristic of prisoners in the mid-1980s uh, are less prevalent now than they, than they were. Uh, elder care services in prisons uh, are, becoming, are becoming more common. Uh, we've also got a phenomenon of longer sentences, uh, so uh, the uh, what you want to look here is uh, the average time expected to serve for, se uh, for a sentence prisoners gone up from 2.4 to 3.7 years. Um, that's, that's the key figure because it takes into account remissions and parole, uh, which are increasingly, uh, increasingly difficult to get. To get. Uh, it was, uh, there was only about 2% of prisoners back in the 80s who were uh, uh, expected to serve for more than a decade. Now it's 9% of prisoners expected to serve for more than a decade. And uh, there has been a massive increase uh, in the number of unsentenced prisoners. Uh, the share of prisoners who were awaiting trial in the mid-1980s was 13%. Uh, now it's up to 32%. So what explains the increase in incarceration? Well, it's, it's almost a perfect storm if you're, uh, you're, you're somebody who's committed an offence. Conditional on committing an offence, people are more likely to call the police. Uh, I think back to a uh, story that uh, one of my flatmates told me about being in a Paddington pub when a prominent Sydney footballer uh, was roughly dragging his girlfriend out of the pub. Uh, my mate stepped in to uh, help the woman uh, and was punched in the head by the footballer. Uh, he didn't report it to police, no one else did, and the footballer got away with it. It's unthinkable that that would happen these days. Uh, an assault uh, of that kind uh, would be reported uh, and police would follow up. Uh, 
so that's the, uh, the the next most important thing. Uh, technology has advantaged police more than it has wrongdoers, uh, and police policing uh, techniques have meant that police are, are better able to uh, to catch those who've done the wrong thing now uh, than they were in the uh, in the mid 1980s. Conditional on the police uh, on on you being, the offence being reported and the police catching you, uh, you are now more likely to find the police pressing cha pressing charges. When they press charges, you'll go to court, uh, and there'll be a question as to whether you will get bail. You are significantly less likely to get bail now uh, than you were uh, in the 1980s. So already your uh, your chances of being in jail are much higher. Uh, and we haven't even gotten to conviction yet. Uh, you'll spend uh, some period of months probably in jail uh, awaiting trial. Uh, and when you get to get to trial, uh, you are more likely to be convicted, more likely to be sentenced, and more likely to be sentenced for a long period. Uh, there's uh, something of an irony in the fact that the technology for monitoring offenders outside prisons has increased uh, significantly, uh, GPS tracking technology and the like. Uh, but yet the propensity of our criminal justice system to use the most old-fashioned approach of putting somebody in a confined space and locking the door uh, has increased markedly over this period. One final thing to say about this uh, table before I go is uh, the uh, one of the huge increases in, uh, in offending uh, behaviour uh, is among assaults. Uh, only 6% of prisoners were in jail in the mid-1980s for assault. Uh, now that's up to 22.5%. To so almost a quarter of prisoners now uh, are in jail for assault. Uh, assault is much less tolerated, much more likely to be caught, and for an offence for which you are much more likely to be jailed. Uh, one, another way to, uh, to think about the incarceration rate uh, relative to the crime rate uh, is to ask the question, how many prisoners are there Per offence, uh, and uh, and this tracks quite quite uh, quite considerably over the period. Uh, back in the mid 1980s, uh, there were about four prisoners for four homicide prisoners uh, for every homicide. Now there's about 12 homicide prisoners for every homicide. So you can think of that as uh, a condition conditional on committing a homicide. Your expected time to serve at about around 12 years, uh, taking into account those who uh, don't get caught. Uh, for, uh, for assault, uh, there were previously just 0.02 prisoners, 0.002 prisoners uh, in jail for assault uh, for every assault that occurred. Uh, now that's, uh, that's increased to 0 .02. Uh, so we've seen a thousand percent increase in the ratio of uh, prisoners in jail for assaults to uh, prisoner to, to assaults that are committed. Uh, and commensurate increases too for sexual assault uh, and for robbery. Uh, we can do a, a couple of quick back of the envelope calculations just to look at two of the big changes, uh, changes in sentence lengths and changes in bail laws, uh, and what would have happened if we hadn't seen those changes. So if the average expected sentences hadn't risen since the mid-1980s, uh, we would have an incarceration rate now, not of 221 prisoners per 100,000 adults, but of 167, suggesting that uh, longer sentences account for about 43% of the rise in incarceration. Uh, and then alternatively, we can say uh, what would have happened if uh, the share of people unsentenced had stayed at 13% rather than rising to 32%. Uh, then we would have, we'd have an imprisonment rate of 179 prisoners. Uh, put those two together and you get 77% of the total change over this period. Um, so what is the, uh, what's the impact of, uh, of incarceration? Uh, well, we have uh, significant impacts on prisoners themselves. Uh, I mentioned before the uh, challenges in the health space. Uh, there's also huge impact on human capital. Uh, prisoners lose touch with friends and family. Uh, and build social networks uh, with those who are likely to help them commit future offences. Uh, we've got uh, only uh, uh, less, less than one in 10 prisoners uh, completing a formal qualification while they're in jail, uh, but many attending the University of Crime. 
uh, think about this as an assault victim who learns how to uh, carry out an armed robbery, uh, somebody who is uh, uh, in jail for a, for a break, a break and enter, uh, learning how to uh, uh, commit, a, com- commit an act of violence. So there's a lot of that sort of uh, interplay uh, and, uh, and that's, that's got to be uh, bad for, for reintegrating people into the labour market. Uh, almost all prisoners will at some stage be released uh, and we're not doing a great job in terms of training prisoners uh, to improve uh, their self-control and, uh, and their employability afterwards. We know that prisoners uh, in many cases will be in bad shape when they're released. Uh, half of all prisoners, so they expect to be homeless upon release. Uh, so it's not a surprise that a majority uh, will return to prison. Uh, this is enormously expensive for the Australian taxpayer. Uh, prisons now costing something in the order of $5 billion a year, according to the Productivity Commission. Uh, so for every person in Australia, uh, that's about $240. Uh, the increase in incarceration is also uh, cost, uh, costing uh, Australians something in the order of $100 a year. Uh, so spread, spread across the population. Uh, many states are now anticipating having to build new correctional facilities, uh, and that, of course, means less money that can be spent on health and education. We also have an intergenerational impact. Uh, 18% of prisoners say that they had a parent who was in jail, uh, and uh, some, some research, though not all, uh, points to there being a strong causal impact of imprisonment on future, future generations. The typical prisoner uh, has 1.8 children. So for the 43,000 uh, people who will go to sleep in Australia's prisons tonight, there are 77,000 children who'll go to sleep with a parent behind bars. Uh, those kids, uh, according to work out of the United States, uh, will fare worse in their t- test scores, uh, will do worse in terms of mental, mental health, uh, girls in that uh, situation more likely to, to become pregnant, uh, boys more likely to uh, get, into, get, get into juvenile delinquency. Uh, so we've got significant ripple effects of, uh, of imprisonment on crime uh, and to the extent that there are of, of imprisonment on, on the community and to the extent that there are crime-reducing effects of imprisonment, uh, we seem to have well passed the point of diminishing returns. Uh, there is another approach to this. It's the approach that uh, uh, Norway has been taking for many years, uh, where prisons have been, uh, been closed. Uh, the Netherlands is also closing prisons. Uh, but also, strikingly, the world leader in incarceration uh, is moving in the opposite direction from us. So the bipartisan reforms con- conducted in the United States uh, have seen imprisonment fall markedly and have seen a massive change in the rhetoric around incarceration uh, from US Republicans, who a generation ago were at the vanguard of the, uh, the tough on crime. Uh, every, uh, every ballot paper featured uh, that uh, well-known candidate, Law and Order. Uh, and now the, uh, the tune has been changed. Uh, we've seen a very different approach to incarceration uh, from US Republicans, uh, and Democrats, of course, have been an important part of this. Uh, there's been bipartisan work looking at the costs of incarceration to state budgets uh, and identifying a range of the uh, evidence-based criminal justice policies that could be, could be pursued instead. Uh, and if there's people on the call who are interested in that, uh, that work, very happy to, uh, to link you up with some of the uh, interesting reformers in this space, people like David Robert, Robertson in Australia uh, and Adam Gill with the Council on Criminal Justice in the United States. Uh, finally, since I'm speaking to a group of uh, maths and stats nerds like myself, uh, let me say that all of these data are readily available on the uh, on the internet. Uh, just uh, go, uh, contact me if you'd uh, if you'd like them, or they're hyperlinked out at the front of the two articles. Um, not only the series that I've shown you, but the building blocks of those series are available. Uh, the population denominators, uh, the crime rates. So for anyone that's interested in in doing work, you know, you could imagine looking at the effect of unemployment on crime or looking at the partisan cycles of imprisonment. Um, the, uh, the long run homicide series is there, there as well for people looking at uh, periods of violence in Australian history 
uh, I'm very pleased to uh, be very happy to assist any researchers who are working on those topics. Uh, Adrian, that seems a, a good spot to uh, stop, uh, stop sharing and, uh, and start taking questions. I noticed there's a few uh, uh, people have popped up in the chat already and very much look forward to people to answering people's questions. Thank you, Andrew. That was fantastic. I just want to say I think it's amazing that you've done all this work while being a full-time MP. Uh, and I acknowledge all the other Australians researching this area. This just seems like a, such an important area to research. I mean, the costs involved are actually enormous. I really had no mm. idea. I will, I'll just do a quick question to start with, well, and then I'll, I will get on to the Q&A. One thing I've seen in smoking, because again, you know, that's another thing where the costs are just enormous. Somebody once worked out a sort of cost per intervention, because of course, if it costs so much, we should be willing to spend a lot of money on interventions. Has anybody worked out a sort of cost per intervention for, say, reducing imprisonment even by 1%? Because that would give us an idea of, um, you know, the sort of projects and, and money we could spend in this area. Yeah, so, well, I mean, you, you know, on one level, it's easy. We, can, uh, we know that uh, incarcerating somebody costs about $300 a day, which is uh, around the cost of a, a nice hotel room in a, in a five-star five hotel in the big city. Uh, in fact, you'd probably get that hotel room for a little cheaper now, given, uh, given what's going on. Uh, and, uh, and so any intervention which can reduce imprisonment uh, by uh, even a few days has, uh, has inc incredibly high payoff. Uh, this is important in the area of youth delinquency programs, for example, uh, where those programs are much, much cheaper than uh, imprisonment. And so you don't need to deter everyone from prison. You only need to deter... Uh, one in one in ten people from from prison uh, in order for these programs to pay off. Uh, but the broader point is we don't have uh, the we don't have as, as good rigorous estimates of the impact of interventions as we'd like to have. Um, there's some good randomised controlled trials out of Chicago on cognitive behavioural therapy, uh, which is the sort of stop and think uh, approach. Uh, not uh, interestingly, the uh, the Chicago interventions aren't trying to tell young men that you should never fight uh, because to never fight on the streets of Chicago can just mean, you know, day one, you lose your phone, day two, you lose your shoes, day three, you lose your shirt. So uh, if someone asks you for something roughly in the street, sometimes you do, do have to be prepared to fight. The point is you want to break that automaticity. And so when the teacher asks a, a young person for their mobile phone, they immediately give it up. Uh, so cognitive behavioural therapy through randomised trials does seem to have produced uh, positive results. And I'd, uh, I'd love to see more randomised trials in this space. I think it's really vital uh, that we get a stronger handle on what works, uh, not just through sort of before after evaluations, but through rigorous randomised trials. Uh, and some of that uh, taking place in prisons would be a great thing. Thank you, Andrew. All right, I'll start. Wow, I've got 10 questions now. Okay, some of them anonymous. It is better if you put your name in. Um, the first question, do you think the higher incarceration rates have anything to do with police brutality and racism? Uh, there's certainly uh, racism in Australia. I don't think there's any denying that. Uh, and it would be uh, foolhardy to imagine that any profession is, uh, is free of racism. I think we've, uh, in general, done a better job than the United States, but I don't think we're in any way perfect on this. Uh, I remember the... Uh, uh, documentary Coppet Sweet, which aired in uh, uh, the 19, 1990s, uh, in which a couple of ABC uh, cam camera people just embedded themselves at Redfern Police Station uh, and began to uh, discover after a couple of weeks uh, some of the shocking behaviour that officers there were engaging in. Uh, I worked as a volunteer in Redfern Legal Centre after that, after a full overhaul of the police station, uh, a lot of work on Indigenous outreach, uh, but it was very clear that there was a, uh, a fractured relationship with the, with the police, and I think that's still something that's, uh, that's a big challenge for, uh, for, for police officers around the country. Uh, but uh, it's also just worth bearing, bearing in mind that this is uh, one, one aspect of a larger challenge uh, and that uh, levels of violence in Indigenous communities are also higher uh, and getting to the root causes of, the, of that violence is, uh, is extremely important. All right, thank you. Next one, uh, looking at incarceration rates increasing from the 1980s onwards, is there a plausible relationship between 
uh, A, the 1980s neoliberal Reaganomic shift, and B, incentivizing higher number of arrests as a corporate style performance indicators. Uh, what was the second one there, Adrian? The uh, incentivizing, you know, some I know some countries do it where the police are incentivized per arrest, you know, they, they, mm. uh, which obviously encourages them to arrest more people. Yeah, I, I haven't seen any any evidence that changing incentives made a difference. Uh, I think technology has been one part here. Uh, there's also been uh, uh, just a whole series of changes in laws, new offences going on the books, uh, changes in uh, bail laws. Uh, changes in standardised sentences, increases in mandatory sentences. Uh, so all of those have, uh, have acted to affect things. Uh, we've also had a couple of uh, interesting uh, changes which have taken place in terms of use of technology. So the uh, CompStat system, which was being uh, rolled, rolled out in the United States in the, in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, has, been, has been used uh, more often. Uh, and that's uh, meant that uh, it's, it, uh, police are more able to catch offenders. I uh, think of something like license plate scanning, uh, which makes it uh, it more e it makes it easier for uh, for uh, offenders to be caught. Uh, you didn't ask this, but uh, perhaps it's worth also recapping uh, why crime rates have fallen so substantially. Uh, one part of that seems to be the removal of lead from petrol. Uh, work by Jessica Walpole Rees suggests that. Uh, uh, high presence of lead in the bloodstream uh, isn't just bad for IQ, but can also increase impulsive behaviour, including uh, offending rates. Uh, and in the United States, there's been uh, careful research by Steve Levitt and John Donoghue, which has shown uh, that there's a relationship between the legalisation of abortion in Rowan Wade uh, in 1973 uh, and the subsequent drop in crime a couple of decades later. Uh, and they argue that's because legalised abortion uh, allowed parents to have kids at a time when they felt ready to raise them uh, and then meant that those kids were less likely to, to grow into offending. Uh, a new update paper by those authors uh, reinforces the, uh, the, the findings they made two decades ago, uh, which were, uh, were, were and remain in, uh, extremely controversial. Uh, but I think... Uh, uh, stand up to pretty rigorous scrutiny. Uh, and there's some evidence uh, that Justin Wolfers and I have documented that, uh, that the same pattern holds in Australia. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere that the lead piping, some people blame the decline of the Roman Empire on all the lead uh, piping that they used. A related question from yes. the South is slightly different about this. Um, to what degree does the enhanced forensic techniques and historical prosecutions contribute to the rates of incarceration? I haven't seen this much in terms of historical. I'm not, not aware of uh, a whole lot of legacy cases being brought through the system, but police forensics is, is clearly much more advanced than it was. Uh, it's not just on CSI that we see this, uh, it's, uh, it's in, in real life. Uh, you talk to police officers now, um, they have a much stronger sense as to uh, networks of criminal offending. Uh, they're much, uh, much, much more able to monitor social media, for example. And you know, there's uh, there's significant debates around the extent to which law enforcement should be able to uh, intrude on privacy. But clearly, there's uh, there's uh, heavy monitor monitoring of electronic communications between between offenders. Um, you think of, uh, for example, the ca the, uh, the the police that caught uh, Adrian Bailey after he murdered Jill Maher. Um, they uh, had the record of her cell phone pings and they went to all of the main telecommunications carriers and said, is there another mobile phone that pinged the same succession of cell phone towers at precisely these times? Uh, and the mobile carriers turned up one other mobile phone. Uh, that was Adrian Bailey's and that was how he was caught. Uh, so that level of technological sophistication just wasn't available to police forces in the mid-1980s. Thank you. Uh, on to Elizabeth's question. Why are people charged with a crime less likely to be granted bail by the courts? Has there been a change in culture in the, ju in the judicial system? Uh, it's largely legislative rather than judicial. Uh, bail has been uh, tightened up uh, as a result of a number of high-profile events. Uh, in Sydney, the uh, uh, Lint Cafe shooting. Uh, in Melbourne, the Burke Street, Burke Street killings. Both of those led to tightening of bail laws. Uh, there's also been changes in the attitudes of bail uh, 
uh, to uh, people uh, charged with family violence offences. Uh, family violence, uh, people awaiting trial for uh, family violence offences uh, were much more likely in the 1980s to be allowed to return to home. Now there's more, much more of a philosophy that the victim is potentially uh, in danger if that happens and the best place for the, for the accused uh, is behind bars. Um, if, you, if you, like me, think that that's a, a pretty good development, uh, then hopefully I've uh, generated some sense of discomfort in you and some sense that this is uh, a challenging area in which there aren't simple solutions to all of the problems we face. Thank you. Question from Masood. What about child incarceration? Uh, there's, uh, there, there hasn't been a marked increase as far as I'm aware. Child incarceration is, is still uh, relative, relatively rare, uh, but the, the increase is, is there along to, uh, alongside uh, the other, uh, the, the headline incarceration rate. Uh, but it remains at a much lower level than, for example, the, uh, the United States, uh, where this is a, a significant issue. Uh, there's also the broader issue as to what happens to uh, child offenders and whether they go into adult prisons or not, uh, and different states have, uh, have different arrangements around that, but clearly it uh, poses a significant risk to the child to be, uh, to be placed in an adult prison. Thank you. Uh, this might be a difficult one for you to answer, but does the US data on incarceration rates reflect the detainment of undocumented migrants by US immigration? No, it doesn't. No, it's, uh, that, that's, that, that detention is separate. Okay, thank you. No. David, uh, which states are making use of evidence-based research to reduce rates uh, and what examples are influencing them? Uh, I'd like to see more. My understanding is the Andrews government is, uh, is exploring a number of, uh, of interventions at the, at the moment uh, and looking at high-quality evaluations around them. Uh, the Queensland Productivity Commission has just done an excellent report on uh, that state's rise in incarceration, recommending, uh, again, a focus on evidence-based policy uh, and drawing on, the, on some of the Pew research that's been done. Uh, I would say also anyone who's interested in the space um, should go to the Washington State Institute for Public Policy's research. Uh, research. Uh, they went through 500 different uh, strategies for reducing offending uh, and identified the ones which were most strongly backed by evidence. Um, so there's a, there's a, a willingness uh, among a range of these reform groups to really sift carefully through the evidence. Uh, the uh, Campbell Collaboration, has, uh, which uh, produces syntheses of randomised trials, uh, has done uh, a range of papers which look at potential, potential interventions. Um, so there's uh, places that, uh, that, that would-be reformers can go uh, to seek out new evidence. But as you can see from that state table I showed uh, earlier in the, in the uh, presentation, Adrian, uh, we're seeing incarceration rates rising across the board. Uh, when we opened the prison here, the Alexander McConaughey Prison here in the ACT, uh, it was named after a uh, uh, famously liberal prison reformer, uh, but it still found itself absolutely chock full uh, just a bit over a decade after, after its opening. Um, so uh, the ACT2, probably Australia's most progressive jurisdiction, uh, is struggling with the issue of, uh, of mass incarceration. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, do the trends of incarceration since the 1980s of white Australians follow a similar pattern to Indigenous Australians or are there major differences? And what about migrants as well or various ethnic backgrounds if you have the data? Yeah, so I can only break out Indigenous incarceration reliably uh, from 1990 and it's risen more rapidly than uh, non-Indigenous incarceration, uh, but both have, have more than doubled. Uh, it's also probably the case that uh, we were uh, over-incarcerating Indigenous Australians right back in the 19th century. Some of the historical work that's been done uh, suggests that in that period, two-thirds of those charged with murders were Indigenous, uh, and the researchers say that it is very unlikely that two-thirds of murders were actually committed uh, by Indigenous Australians. Uh, so the over-representation of Indigenous Australians in the criminal justice system is a, a standing feature uh, of uh, post-European settlement Australia, I'm sad to say. Uh, migrants, I, uh, I haven't, haven't seen good figures on this. We don't, uh, we don't have a, uh, a strong break, a breakout. Certainly, I know in the United States, um, there is a uh, very, very clear relationship between migrants and crime, uh, and that is that migrants uh, commit less crime than the native-born.
Question for Mioni. Uh, what are the pathways for academics to contribute to prisoner education? I'm thinking beyond entertaining them about the prisoner's dilemma, uh, but rather helping with post-prison skills. I think that's a great question, Mary. Uh, I'd be thinking about what are the uh, occupations that prisoners are most likely to find themselves in. Uh, my sense is that there is uh, a, there are a disproportionate number of prisoners um, studying law or legal studies. Uh, and while this may be uh, a, a better use of time than uh, getting into trouble in the yard, um, we need to be confident that those people have a future pathway in which they can use their legal skills. Uh, and if we don't, uh, then providing uh, the sorts of skills that are important in the labour market may be, may be more valuable. Uh, looking at growth occupations and uh, areas like hospitality and trades uh, is, uh, is, is really important. Uh, and recognising that uh, where you're balancing, balancing up safety, you also need to take into account the safety of the broader community. Uh, so an approach that says no one can be working in trades because trades involve tools that could be used as weapons needs to be balanced against the idea that if somebody doesn't have a skill when they leave, then they may well turn to crime and that crime may well involve violence. So there may be a violent outcome either way. Uh, you need to be uh, very careful in terms of how you, uh, how you manage the system um, so you're not trying to, uh, to avoid all of the risks within prisons, but thereby inadvertently putting all of the risk onto the broader community after release. Yeah, I know in the UK, the shoe shop Timpsons, uh, they have a 10% minimum target for... Uh, 10% of their staff are ex-offenders, and they've done that for a long time. It's really interesting, isn't it? We've got very little of that in Australia. Uh, there's, uh, there's a strong stigma against uh, those with criminal records and uh, a real lack of, of willingness to, uh, to hire former offenders. Uh, and to, to have more corporations see that as a, as a badge of pride would be valuable. Okay, I've got a language question from Laura. I'm interested to know why you use the term convict in terms of describing Australia experience a second wave because the current waves are not convicts, they haven't been transported. That's quite right. Yes, Laura, I'm, uh, I'm merely trying to get attention. Uh, I'm, I, I, know, I know you'd find this terrible behaviour in a politician, but uh, uh, yes, I thought it was important to try and shine a spotlight on what's happening with, uh, with incarceration rates. They've just been ticking up and ticking up and ticking up. The whole time I've been looking at, looking at this, uh, every year I go back to the figures and they're a little bit higher. And uh, my hope was to shock people into action, uh, to focus more on the Indigenous incarceration rate and to focus more on the non-Indigenous incarceration rate, uh, both of which I believe uh, are so high as to uh, uh, endanger the community and to make, uh, make the system much more expensive than it needs to be. Thank you. Now, we've only got a few minutes left, but we'll try and get through as many of these as we can. It's great we've got so many questions. Should we be having conversations about possibly defunding the police? I don't think so. I think uh, there's, uh, we, we want to be working with the police rather than against them. And indeed, uh, thinking about the entire system, uh, one would imagine that putting more resources into policing and less resources into prisons uh, could well be a more effective way of uh, making the place safer. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, there's a, a lovely notion in criminology that we need to trade, we need to think about the trade-off between certainty and severity. Um, so if you're trying to deter someone from committing an offence, um, you could double the probability they get caught, say from 25 to 50%, uh, or you could double the sentence if they get caught, say from 10 years to 20 years. If you're dealing with somebody who has a high discount rate, meaning they don't put much value on what's going to happen in a decade's time, then severity is probably not going to work for you very well. Uh, in fact, it may have no impact whatsoever. Uh, somebody who's thinking about taking a sawn-off shotgun inside a service station is probably, by their very nature, not thinking about what's going to be happening in 2030. Um, so let's focus in instead on certainty, on the probability of apprehension, uh, and that puts you onto the, the area of smart policing as being the best strategy for deterring crime uh, rather than severe sentences as being more effective. And by the way, Laura, it is a whole lot cheaper for the community uh, to be to be properly funding uh, good policing services uh, than to be uh, funding longer and longer sentences for grey-haired offenders who are of no risk to anyone. Well, thank you, Andrew. We might have to end it there because I have a horrible feeling we'll get cut off and that would be a very strange way to end it. So uh, I just want to end this by saying thank you very much for your time and um, 
hope you continue to do this research as, as well as your, your day job. Thanks, Adrian. Real privilege to, uh, to be part of the conversation. And yeah, I do consider it um, part of my day job. I'm a professor turned politician and it seems the right role for, for me is to continue to work in the ideas space. But of course, I've also moved private members' motions in the parliament about uh, crime and incarceration uh, and really uh, want to act as a conduit to my parliamentary colleagues on this issue. So if there's people who are uh, working on the issue who'd like to get in touch, uh, I'm not hard to find on the internet. Uh, it'd be lovely to hear from you. Thanks for the chance to talk. Wonderful. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, everybody, for coming.